When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Some facts. Get you some facts right here. Get you some facts. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and as always, this show is a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Go check it out for all your musical podcast needs, growing, tons of great shows on there. Definitely check it out, and stay tuned because we have our annual Pantheon Family Holiday episode dropping in a couple of weeks. You will not want to miss that. We got some tasty tunes on there for you, and um, just thank you, you know? It's Thanksgiving week. It's a week to be grateful, and I'm grateful to you for listening. And I'm really excited about today's show because I have a great interview for you with Steve Bolton, who is the author of a newly released book, Anthems We Love, 29 Iconic Artists on the Songs That Shaped Our Lives. If you listen to this show, then this book is a must-get, as it truly gives some incredible song facts. Steve and I discuss a few of those, including God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, In the End by Linkin Park, and Africa by Toto. Some gems in there. There are just some incredible stories that he's had through his interviews and research. You are sure to learn something new about a song that you love. So go get the book and enjoy Steve Bolton. Steve Bolton, thank you so much for coming on to the Song Facts podcast. You've got yourself an awesome book that literally is essentially the book version of what I try and do on this show. So I'm so excited to be talking to you and I was so excited to get your book and read it because it's the reason that this exists is because I sit there and devour where songs come from. And I was just like, if I can talk to people about that, that sounds like a dream come true to me. So um, the book is called Anthems We Love, 
and it's 29 iconic artists on the songs that shaped our lives. And I will say that when you're going through the song list, you you hit on some ones that are absolutely just there. I think that there's a lot of nostalgia involved with a lot of them because maybe you haven't heard them in a while, but a lot of them seem to be, at least for me, they were like certain periods in my life. And I found that really interesting. Um, how did the idea for this book originally come to you? Well, I was approached by Harper Horizon about doing a book and they wanted to do something about how songs were written. I was like, no, been done a million times and been done well. But for me, who's interviewed everyone over the last 30 years, I always found it fascinating the way that artists talk about how songs, once they go off into the world, they're not theirs anymore. Once you put a song into the world, it becomes the world. And most artists, 99.5% of artists, do not go back and listen to their own material. So to confront them with, well, confront is the wrong word, but to have them go back and revisit all these songs was actually immensely interesting to me because it's something they don't typically do. Do you think, so that's interesting because it sounds like you have the same type of interviews that I do. So your research for the book and your your accumulation of content to put into the book was similar to what this show is. And I completely agree with that. The vast majority of people that I talk to, they end up saying, hey, this is what was going on when I wrote it. And then as soon as I released it, I'm on to the next project or I'm out touring, whatever it might be. It's now up to the people listening to it to interpret it. But I do get, I'm wondering as you were doing it, did you, did, were there any songs that missed the cut because maybe you didn't get the story that you wanted or that you there just wasn't something there that they're just, you know, I, I feel like I run into that sometimes where I'm like, there's no there there. There's just, the song just happened. There's no real story to it. No, and I'll tell you why. And it's interesting because I think that, you know, but I also gave artists a lot of leeway in selecting songs. Got so it. for example, with Lindsey Buckingham, I might have chosen Go Your Own Way and maybe there's nothing there. He chose Big Love because that song was so seminal in his solo career. Hall and Oates, I gave them a listing of several options. And one of the ones that Daryl chose was Sarah Smile, which probably has become one of my favorite songs out of this book. And it's a song I always loved but I really appreciated it in a different way after this. Yeah. Similarly, uh, Joe Perry, I said, dude, you can go Walk This Way, you can go Sweet Emotion, Dream On, any one of those works, he chose Walk This Way. So giving the artist some leeway, because you know, look, with all these artists, they all have multiple songs. Well, and I think, uh, you know, the idea of Walk This Way, which isn't even on my list to ask about, but that's more of a, a song that um, kind of has two stories to it because it really it had their original writing of it and everything like that. And what was going on with Aerosmith at that time, but then it has its resurgent in the mid eighties and really kind of combines rock and roll with hip hop and kind of makes hip hop mainstream. Well, all these songs have second lives. That's the whole point of an anthem. Yeah. Is that it has to go on and take on a different life. Like it's funny. Verity and white talked about September the song came out in the late seventies. It was a fill in on a greatest hits album became a hit but it wasn't something that became a big part of the show until later on and then he said in the 90s it became september you know and then they re-recorded it with anna kendrick and justin timberlake for trolls and it becomes this massive thing look at toto africa and with the weezer cover yeah so every for an anthem to become an anthem it's interesting because i think that's one of the things that i learned the difference between a hit and an anthem is the anthem has multiple lives. 
Okay, I really like that. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, when I'm when you read through it, and maybe that's what I was talking about is this nostalgia because there's so many songs on here that have maybe hit you at different points in your life, and I, I do I do find that really interesting. Um, I want to get right into some of these songs, and the second chapter it goes into one that Sir Paul McCartney once called the greatest pop song ever. And that song is, of course, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. I may not always love you But long as there are stars above you You never need to doubt it I'll make you so sure about it God only knows what I'd be without you Which Brian Wilson famously stopped touring with the band and hung back writing new tracks for the album's Pet Sounds and Smile, the former of which included this song. Um, so much goes into this song. Um, you do such a great job um, within a few pages just kind of telling the story about it. But what can you kind of tell us about God Only Knows? That was an interesting one. Okay, first of all, this goes back to what we were talking about with the number of songs by some of these great artists. Now, it's interesting to me God only knows is probably, and it's funny, a lot of the songs I was like, well, look, I, I, my argument in the intro, these are not the greatest songs ever written because there's a lot based on artist availability. Greatest list is subjective. Totally. But God only knows is the greatest pop song ever written. And I will fight on that hill. <laughs> but funny enough, Al Jardine was like, dude, that's not even the signature Beach Boys song. He's like, it should be good vibrations. Totally. And that's how many great songs the Beach Boys have. But God Only Knows is an interesting one because it's one of the ones, like so many in this book, it wasn't initially appreciated for the genius it was. I mean, like all of Pet Sounds. You know, of course, Pet Sounds is now considered one of the two or three greatest albums of all time. Won no Grammys. You know, it wasn't at the time hailed as this genius work. Yep. And God Only Knows is something that over time, it just developed with people. And it became this thing. And it's really interesting all the musicians who love it so much because I think that gives it so much of the credibility. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, the, I think the fascinating part that I didn't know that I discovered reading the book was that the band had been on essentially like a year, maybe even like a two year long tour and Brian Wilson for whatever, you know, we, if you, if you watch his documentary, if you watch the smile documentary, that kind of stuff, you understand why he wasn't on tour with them, but he was really just back being a studio rat writing these songs and just being his brilliant self. And then he gets the band gets back and they get thrown into the studio. And you kind of touched on this where Al Jardine said, like, we didn't know if one thing or another was special because we were just sitting there recording instruments and vocals for all these songs. And half the time it sounded like they didn't even know which song that was going to be a part of. It was just like, go in here, sing these words to this melody and we'll cut it all together and, and mix the song. And I mean, the vocal melodies on God only knows are what really, I think give it its cemented place in history. And um, just that the band wasn't even really aware of it at the time, because it was just being almost thrown into Brian Wilson's head. Yeah. They had no clue. It's like, again, it's just a job for them. And then you go and you do it live. And they did say that it started to become special live right away. I also like the analogy they use talking about the classical component and how it has that sort of like um, 
nutcracker suite feel to it. And so that's they see yeah. an element of the timelessness in it because it has that same element. And it's funny because then Al Jardine mentioned that. And then Brian Wilson in a separate interview was like, oh, I like that. <laughs> Just like, you know what? I will take that answer. Yeah. But he's again, you know, you also know so often from writer standpoints, they have no idea. They just do something. It comes to them. And then you go back and look at it and be like, oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. And I think that it's I mean, to me, it's just a very fascinating thing to not be aware of that kind of genius. I mean, the way that those would you there's another guy that I had on this show a couple of years ago, his um, and he's got a podcast called, called Strong Songs. And he's a, a college educated musician. He's profoundly got such a profound in-depth knowledge of music theory. And he takes these songs on his show and breaks them up. And he did God only knows. And when you listen to that and you really hear someone who knows music dissect it, you can really understand the brilliance of it. And it's it's ongoing for me. I, I really like that. And like I said, you you give these backstories to these songs throughout this book in, you know, four to five pages for the most part, I would say is the average. And you pack a lot in there. And I think that if anybody's interested, if you're listening to this show, you're going to love this book because this is the kind of thing that um, that Steve's talking about. Um, you touched on this one already. I want to jump into Toto's just massive hit Africa. He turned to me as if to say, hurry boy, it's waiting there for you. And there's some tidbits in this that were startling to me. Uh, apparently, a potential throwaway song by the band, as it was trying to get on the album, um, told it would have to be on the writer uh, David, is it Page? David, David Page's Page, solo yeah. album. And, um, and then it was also voted the greatest rock song of all time by science and, a, and an NYU professor in his research on it. So that's just fascinating stuff. So, yeah, talk to me about some of that. That's one of my favorite stories in the book is that, you know, because, again, so oftentimes, right, there's only one artist in the entire book out of the 29 who admits to trying to write an anthem. And that's <laughs> Kisses Paul Stanley with Rock and Roll All Night. And it's only because he was given an edict by Casablanca Records legendary Neil Bogart, you need to write an anthem. So everybody else had no idea what they were doing. No clue. You write a song, you're like, eh, hopefully it's good, you know, and you have no clue that it's going to become freaking Toda Africa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he literally takes it to the band and they're like, yeah, dude, that's going to be really good on your solo album. We're not doing that. And then that song had such an interesting journey well before the whole Weezer thing and all that, because I love the fact that that song started on the dance charts. Yeah. That was such an early sort of world anthem and was way more advanced than people give it credit for. Way more advanced than I gave it credit for. What's the release on that? Is that 81? 82, I believe. 82. Okay. So I believe you no, but you have to imagine like what's going on there. You have like a studio 54 kind of phasing out. You have uh, all that, like that kind of late 70s vibe that's phasing out. New wave is really coming in. Talking heads are hitting their stride. And you, 
like I'm just wondering if people listening are thinking of this song, Toto Africa, as a dance song. And I'm guessing that they don't. <laughs> they don't now, but it's funny because when like David Pitch was telling me that's how it first hit the charts. I, I, you just want to hear that coming into an yeah, I mean, if you're at a club and there's nobody really feeling the vibe and a DJ decides to spin that, is that going to liven the place up in the early 80s? I suppose it did. That's just fascinating. Well, I think because, again, it had that world feel. But that's why I say it was so advanced, because people weren't at that time calling it world music. Did you when you hear that one, do you get vibes of Graceland? Paul Simon? in that same kind of worldly vibe? No, because I think that um, to me, I don't because Paul Simon, I think was very consciously trying to make a world record. Yeah. Whereas Toto just made a pop song that happened to have those leanings. Yeah. So, so I don't think it was intended to be world music. It just sort of resonated with people in a way. Yeah. Did you get any more about how it was kind of thrown to the side by the band and then how it eventually made its way onto the album and then into, I, I, I think you might talk about it, but I can't remember exactly what you said, but I, I'm curious if you can connect those dots for us. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's one of those things where it's like, literally they had extra studio time. So it's like, okay, well, we don't love it, but we're going to see what we can do with it and just having some time to play with it. And it's funny because you two talk a lot about this with the song one as well. A lot of times that's the way it happens is just, you know, you start with the germ of an idea, but when you're in a band, of course, it becomes fleshed out with everybody. And so Toto, when they're making four, just had some extra time in studio. So they're working on this song. And now all of a sudden it becomes something where the band feels like it's theirs as well. Yeah. You know, a song like that, that's so well produced and has so many layers to it. I'm really curious what that scratch demo comes in and sounds like. You know, I have no clue, but I mean, it's funny because they talk about the fact too, it was done. There was so much work on it and it was all done analog and literally tells a story about it. Like there being pieces of tape hanging all around the room. And yeah. Unbelievable. Um, just a reminder, we're with Stephen Bolton, his book, Anthems We Love, 29 Iconic Artists on the Songs That Shaped Our Lives is available now. Please go get it. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Song Facts Podcast right after this. Song Facts Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, I've always wondered why when an athlete breaks a leg in the middle of a competition, they get all the sympathy and everyone's all worried about them. But if their mental health breaks down, that's not necessarily viewed in the same way. It's almost viewed as a weakness. But without a healthy mind, being truly happy... And being at peace, well, it's hard. And the good news is there's therapy out there and it actually works. So what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated and you need some tools to help. Maybe you're struggling in a relationship or at work. These are the things that therapy is there for. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. You don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. 
join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really all about. And a special offer to SongFacts podcast listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash songfacts. That's betterhelp.com slash songfacts. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast, and have a great day. This is it got so much to it. There's so many good songs that I'm not going to touch on. You've got My Girl by The Temptations. You've got Light My Fire by The Doors. Um, I want to talk about one that may have been potentially been the reason that the last band that I played with as a drummer asked me to leave uh, because I struggled so much to get the intro drum fill down and that is of course Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. the song has such an interesting backstory and it really stands up to the test of time i think both musically and then as you kind of touched on how it had a different name at first which i'll let you get into uh lyrically at well it really kind of stands the test of time so what did you discover this as um you were doing the research for this one well like a lot of the songs of course roland orzabal from the band didn't even like it he didn't want to finish it it was actually <laughs> his wife who made him finish the song like, but to me, this was a really interesting one because, so I grew up in the eighties, right? And this song to me represents such a period of, it was fascinating. Cause think about a song like everybody wants to rule the world today, hitting number one on the charts. Yeah. That would never happen no. in 2022. Even never. if Taylor Swift wrote it? Even if Taylor Swift wrote it, <laughs> recorded it, and, you know, like, brought her whole squad on it, it would not. Yeah. Because it's just a song that's too smart for the pop charts in 2022. Hmm, that's but an interesting look at the take. time it represented. You had a period where U2, R.E.M., Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA, these were considered pop hits. And so Everybody Wants to Rule the World really made me think about the era as a whole. And the 80s was a really underrepresented golden era for political songwriting. And Everybody Wants to Rule the World was kind of at the center of that. Do you think that and the, it, I feel like there's a common theme here where all the artists that you listed were all born. So by the time that from their birth to the time that those songs were written in the 80s, the I, the living within Cold War world was just ingrained in them so that was a very that was their reality their entire lives was on the brink of nuclear war and that's what those songs a lot are representing isn't it well that's exactly what he says orzabal said it was originally called everybody wants to go to war he says it was written again in the height of the cold war between russia and the united states so that was always in the back of my mind and, and exactly and so you read that passage and you're like so this song could potentially make its way up the charts again in today's time because 
how many times in the last six months since whenever the invasion happened in Ukraine, February, have we been like, are we on the brink again? Interestingly, though, I think it's a very different time because what happens now, of course, is it's all talked about on social media. Yeah. But you're still not hearing political songs on the charts. Well, that's a whole nother thing. I'm, maybe we can get into that a little bit. Do you think that there's a reason for that? Do you think that's because there's so much division that an artist feels like that they're essentially canceling half of their fan base by doing that? I think it's because when you look at a, a, her song, like I Can't Breathe, right? Yeah. It's very difficult to write a good protest song. It's really difficult to write a good protest song. I think a lot of the artists today who are very outspoken maybe don't have the skill set to do so. And it's not because they're not great artists. But again, these artists groups, so if you're talking about Tears for Fears, if you're talking about Springsteen, Michael Stipe, Bono, they all grew up on this stuff. They all grew up listening to Dylan, Jimmy Cliff, Marvin Gaye, what's going on. Yeah. You know, so that stuff is ingrained in them because it was part of their upbringing. I think today, the other thing about it too is that, you know, for artists that have social media, so I've talked about this with a lot of great artists, like a lot of great activists, Look, I love Billie Eilish, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're Billie Eilish, you don't need to write a protest song because you have an Instagram base of 80 million people plus that you can reach out to and deliver your message. You can just send a, you can put a little message up on an Instagram story. You can send a tweet that lets people know what your thoughts are. You don't have to necessarily put it into your art if you don't want to. That's interesting. Exactly. And I think, again, it's because, you know, in part, I think a lot of artists don't necessarily know how to. And it's funny because I hosted a podcast for a little bit called People Have the Power, named after the Patti Smith song, because it's one of my favorite songs of all time. Mm -hmm. And I would interview everyone from the Chicks and Shepard Ferry to, you know, Carlos Santana and Graham Nash on their favorite protest songs of all time. And protest song is, like I said, it's a very skillful art. And Everybody Wants to Rule the World is a perfect example of that because it's a catchy as hell pop song. So it's this wonderful pop song that you're listening to it in a venue of 20,000 people. You're singing along, having no idea that, in fact, it is, as Orzabal says, all about power struggles. Yeah. No, in the really same way that. Born in the USA was so misinterpreted. Yeah, that's very true, because I think that that song 100% doesn't sound like what it's actually written about. <laughs> which yeah. is a very unique thing that's very a uh, juxtaposed situation where you're kind of throwing the person off and seeing like are you really going to listen to what i'm saying here and nine times out of ten they're not going to yeah that's really interesting um okay i've got a we're, i've got one more song i want to talk about but i want to let you kind of guide this a little bit what's a song or a, a conversation you had with an artist about a song that got into the book that really was unique and surprising to you because you've obviously talked to a ton of people when you do this you do kind of find some repeating themes and stuff like that but i'm wondering if there's a conversation that really stuck out well interestingly it was not a conversation hmm. but if you've read the book which you have by far for me my favorite chapter and the craziest thing of all was getting tom waits and kathleen brennan to write an original chapter. And oh. I have no idea how the hell that happened. <laughs> I was, I reached out. I love that song. And I was like, I was told by their people, it's never going to happen. He doesn't do anything. Doesn't talk to anyone. 
And then I get a note back saying that, yes, they're interested in participating, but writing their own chapter. And so it's funny because for me, what was they actually wrote it as a dialogue to me, which for me, Tom Waits is my favorite songwriter of all time. Yeah. So the fact that this happened is just astonishing beyond belief. But then they talk about the fact that they actually thought I chose the song Take It With Me off Mule Variation. Phones are fucked. No one knows where we are. It's a long time since I drank champagne. The ocean's blue, as blue as your eyes. I'm gonna take it with me when I go. Because I make the argument that's a song that can be played at both a wedding and a funeral. That song to me is so detail oriented, so intimate. And it's a really interesting thing because for, I mentioned Sarah Smile earlier and then Graham Nash is in here with our house. And I think the thing that maybe was surprising is when you look at how intimate an anthem can be. An anthem can be, I think people think of an anthem as like Freebird, right? Yeah. Which is a great song. One of the greatest songs of all time. But it's like people think of it as big and this sort of overall thing. And actually an anthem can be the most intimate detail. And so Take It With Me, similar to both Our House and Sarah Smile, has that same intimacy. Like just the detail in that song. But it's funny because then Tom and Kathleen Wright, we thought you were crazy. Like when you said that, you know, we want this song, we're like, there has to be a mistake. <laughs> and then they're like, but we went back and listened to it and it holds up really well. So the fact that I got them to go back and re-listen to the song, and by the way, as an aside for listeners, it's so funny because again, there's a difference between commercial artists and musicians, musicians. And let me tell you, when you get Tom Waits to do something, everyone pays attention. Yeah. Everyone was like, wait, what the hell? I literally had Sammy Hagar walk up to me at a party and be like, I heard you got Tom Waits. How do you know him? Like, what is he doing? <laughs> like, even, it doesn't matter who you are. You are a fan. And there's such a mystique about him because they don't do anything. So to me, that was probably my favorite chapter because I still, to this day, I haven't gotten to ask him why he got to do it. I mean, that's an amazing thing, right? This has got, this has become, you know, a pretty decent sized slice of the pie that is your book. You completely had to give up I don't know how much control over the editing and everything of what they sent to you, but I you said, had... do not touch a damn word of what they wrote. Yeah. That's what I would think too. And I mean, that's something else is that someone in your position might be like, God, I really, really want to have some, have this song in my book, but am I willing to like, not have my word put on it? That's a really, I mean, you've had to set your ego aside, but I feel like obviously for you, that was a really easy decision. I'm wondering if every artist could make that. Well, it's funny. I think for me, it's it's one of these things. I started to really play around with this concept because, again, like I said, I was approached about doing a book about songwriting and I was like, that's been done. And then I started to think about it and I was like, the whole point is there are no rules. This yeah. is my concept. So I should be able to do whatever I want with it. And so if Tom Waits says he wants to write his own chapter, well, you say, dude, if you want to write your own book, you know, here, go ahead, <laughs> you know? And I mean, both of them, what they had to say was fascinating. But to me, something like this should be 
unique. It should be something where you look at it and be like, oh, there are no rules to it. Because again, every artist has their own approach and their own different way of doing things. Yeah. And it's funny because I've been working on a second volume already. No surprise. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I've done like 40 something interviews, but then I had the opportunity to interview Mike Stoller. And it was like one of my dream songs was Stand By Me. And, mm. you know, but of course, I'm talking with artists about performance. And then I was like, well, wait, if I get the opportunity to interview Mike Stoller, same thing. There shouldn't be any rules to this. Mike Stoller wrote the song. There's no reason why he can't be in there. Yeah. What's your process? Do you just kind of like hit record and let these guys just start remembering and telling the stories and then just try and put the key points together? It's or are you total coming... stream of consciousness, total conversation. Okay. So it's almost Actually, like... Actually, what's interesting is I've done interviews for 30 years. There was more of a formula to this than there is to any other project I've ever done because there are certain things that you want to hit upon. Iconic live performances, like Eros was talking about the Super Bowl show or Barry Manilow's story about doing um, Could This Be Magic? Yeah. And how he did it at Red Rocks was utterly fascinating to me and how that set him on his way to being a performer. And it's interesting too, as you get into these, Carly Simon talks about the fact too with anticipation she never planned on being a performer. She had a crush on Cat Stevens. He asked her out and invited her to open for him. And she was like, sure. And she tells the whole story of like what she actually was, you know, she wrote anticipation waiting for him on a date. But it's funny because Cameron Crowe, who's a friend and wrote the intro and was one of the first people to read the book. I asked Carly what she made him for dinner. And Cameron was laughing at me. He's like, how the hell did you think that? Once you want to paint the picture, once you as just a fan think, Okay, Carly Simon in 1971 is making dinner for Cat Stevens. <laughs> like, what is that menu? Like, exactly. just as a fan, you are just like, what is on that menu? A hundred percent. And then you're, you would imagine this is like up in Laurel Canyon. You've got like the guys from CSNY, just like just a couple of houses down the road. You've got the Eagles like coming up with their stuff. Like, they're just surrounded by all this stuff. And then you're just phoning in on, no, but what did you and Cat eat that night? I love that. That's the stuff that's fascinating to me, but just as a geek, like that's the stuff that's interesting. And it's true. And it's funny because a lot of times though, those things will paint the pictures and sort of get them thinking about these things. Well, it'll also jog a memory because they'll be like, you know, that could easily just be like, yeah, I was in the kitchen and we were, I was doing up like mashing the potatoes and oh, that's where I got the idea for this. And like, it might just like start bringing in more memories. So I think like when you dive into those details, it's huge. Well, and by the way, I hadn't put this together till just now, but how great is it that she talks about the fact she was writing the song while making dinner. And that was one of the first big songs to become a commercial hit being used in the Heinz ketchup ads, which she says she did not want to do. But it's funny. So the song actually went full circle from dinner to ketchup. <laughs> and that's why we do this. That's why we continue to talk about it because the stories continue to evolve and dots are connected, which I really love. Um, Okay, so last song that I want to talk about, and you've been an absolute trooper, um, wishing you the best in your recovery and everything like that. People can just imagine what, what it is that we're talking about. But just know, Steve being here with us right now is freaking awesome, and I love it. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. No, it's um, fine. I mean, this is it's funny, because actually, literally, someone was just texting me, like, I can't believe you're functioning. This is easy. Literally, all you're doing is talking. I'm not yeah. trying to run a marathon. 
It's true. My wife and I talk about our social batteries all the time. And I'm like, man, my social batteries wore out. We got to get out of here. And uh, and then sometimes it takes a couple of days to recover the social battery and charge it back up. But, um, you know, maybe you've been pent up and, and, and doing something like this is actually what you need to be doing. Who knows? Hopefully. Um, OK, last one I want to talk about. And we're going to kind of bring it a little bit more into modern times because I, I stuck us back in like the 60s and the 80s a little bit with my song choices. But I'm so happy I did because those are such such fascinating stories with those. Um, I, let's close it out with this one. Lincoln Parks in the end. I think that this is relevant for a lot of reasons. The fact that we lost the writer, you know, within the last, what is it? Five years or so, something like that yeah. um, to his health, mental health issues and that kind of stuff. What did you discover while you were researching this one? And who'd you talk to for this one? Brad Delson, the guitarist for the band. Got it. Okay. So I spoke with Brad Delson, who's the guitarist for the band. And, you know, Lincoln's interesting. I've known them for many years back in 2004. I randomly was invited to come out and do a book with them on the road. They were doing a coffee table book. Hmm. So I have a long history with them. And I think that probably influenced me a little bit because I got to watch the fans on a nightly basis and realize what this song meant to people. And it's funny because some people might be like, okay, wait, is this an anthem in the same way that a song like light my fire or, you know, rock and roll all night is. And I would argue, yes, a hundred percent it is. But it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that, you know, having done the book, I knew a lot about it. But I love the stories that Brad tells about the fact they finished the song needing a single in this really sketchy, sketchy rehearsal space in Hollywood where Mike Shinoda, who was one of the writers with Chester, was working on it. And basically, you know, they went to see him the next morning, not even sure if Mike was still going to be alive. Unbelievable. So do you think that did you get any pushback for having this song? I mean, this is we're 2022 what was this song 20 years old at this point roughly yeah. roughly and did you get any pushback being like this you got a song here that's not old enough to be considered an anthem funny enough i did and my argument to that was as i said earlier there are no rules i get to decide 100 percent, because like who decides you know you the, the fm radio had in its heyday, and it's still got some of it, but it's trailing off. But the oldies station, every major city had an oldies station. But who cut that off? I've always questioned that, even when I was a kid. And I'm just wondering about that. Like, at what point does a song like In the End go on the oldies station and be more anthemic? Um. Well, again, like you say, in the FM world, who knows anymore? I think to me, what I what I found was in terms of an idea of an anthem, it's a song that becomes generational. It's a song that transcends when it came out and speaking with Brad about it. And this is very true. And it's also very true of, look, I just saw My Chem twice on their reunion tour. Uh -huh. My Chemical Romance, Welcome to the Black Parade is the last song in the book, right? That's a song, that's the most recent song, came out 2006. But as Gerard and I spoke about, you've got kids who were not even born when that song came out, screaming their freaking heads off for that song 
in the audience, same way they did for Stairway to Heaven and Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. And so again, the idea of an anthem is a song that becomes generational. And how it gets discovered, who knows? Like I spoke with Robbie Krieger about that for Light My Fire. Who Who is it that says, you're 14, here's your first joint and Light My Fire? I yeah. don't know who that, but I know that I experienced it. Every freaking boy in the history of the world does. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing because at some point, these songs that are in the anthem category make their way into the vast majority of the population's ears and brains. And how that path gets there is just a fascinating thing, whether it's like, you know, for me, the Beatles were just on when I was driving, doing road trips with my parents and the Rolling Stones and Fleetwood Mac. So that just became into my head. But then like stuff that they never listened to or I was never exposed to by anybody else, like talking heads and things like that. I have to think really hard about how I discovered that and where that came from. Probably somebody introducing me to the talk, Stop Making Sense documentary or something like that. But I don't know. That's really an interesting thing of how did these that be an. I, to me, that's an interesting thing to research is talking to people about how did this get in, pick one song and find 10 people that have amazing stories of how this became important in their lives in different generations. Well, there's several ways. One is cover versions. Mm -hmm. So like, and it's funny because going back to everybody wants to rule the world. That was one of the most interesting things to me. Roland Orsball was saying, because again, that's a song that comes across as a pop song, but it's obviously a very dark subject matter. They loved Lord's version of it so much from the Hunger Games that, in fact, they used her version to open their live show and then went into their version. So but obviously, if Lord, who's 20 at the time, is doing the song, there's a whole new generation that's hearing it. Movies are another huge thing. So September, for example, is the closing song in the party scene at night at the museum. Mm. So now you've got a bunch of six year olds who now associate the song with being literally the biggest party song of all time. Um, great live performances, you know, being passed down, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, whether it's award shows or the Super Bowl, like Walk This Way or whatever. You know what? Shazam. You listen to a TV show, all of a sudden you can hear something on the back that really gravitates to it. You just put your phone up and let it listen and tell you what it is. And then you can download it, stream it, whatever you need right there. I guess with modern age, like, yeah, it gets easier and easier. And especially the way that the people that are writing these shows and movies and doing all these things. And, um, you know, artists are always looking back and, and pulling things from the people that influence them and then exposing them to their fans and stuff like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I really like that. Um, you've, you just dropped that. You've got another one coming. Can you give us a little teaser as to what we can expect on the next one? Who knows? I've done so many interviews. <laughs> you just start doing them and you're like, all right, we'll figure it out as we go. But it's like, very similar. Someone asked me, you know, how this ended up at 29, because YouTube took six months to say yes. And when YouTube finally say yes, you don't say, oh, no, sorry, I don't have room anymore. You know, <laughs> and the you... second one is very similar. It's like, you know, you just start doing the interviews. And as it continues to build, you go with I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. You're obviously a music geek like I am. I think from a music geek standpoint, the second one is probably even geekier. Like I talked to Roger McGuinn about So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. Steve Winwood about Give Me Some Lovin'. Mm. Leonard Skinner, Freebird. Um, Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive. Both Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart about Sweet Dreams. Michael Stipe, It's the End of the World as We Know It. That was a huge one for me to get. Just yeah. a huge R.E.M. fan. And he also does very little. I mean, it just goes on. Jimmy Cliff, Many Rivers to Cross. 
And again, what will happen is there's like just wishless songs. And I'll just, for some reason, I'll become obsessed with the song and be like, for this one, for example, oh my God, I went to Barry Gibb 15 times, at least 15 <laughs> times. And I can't tell you why. He's not my favorite songwriter. I'm a huge Bee Gees fan, massive fan. But for some reason, I just felt like he needed, or Al Green, Let's Stay Together. Because I would pick that as arguably the best song of the 70s. And to me, 70s wow. is my favorite musical decade. Yeah. And so I was just, but I was, you know, he's not doing any interviews. God, that's just unbelievable. Um, all right, Steve, I've taken up too much of your time. I appreciate you. This book is awesome. One more time, everyone. Anthems we love. 29 iconic artists on the songs that shaped our lives. Endless tidbits of amazing information for you. Thank you Wait, so much. Wait, now I got to ask you because I've been asking other music geeks because, of course, you being me start to think about these. If you could talk with any artist about any song in history, what is it and why? Living or Dead? Yeah. Okay. I would probably, I know the story behind it, but it's a little bit more modern. But I think one of my most recent songwriter discoveries, which is probably within the last five years, who I am just endlessly fascinated with is Jason Isbell. And if I could talk to him about what was going on in his head when he wrote the song, um, If We Were Vampires, that would be an absolute dream. I think that's the person I'd want to talk to right now. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, there's no right or wrong. It's funny because, I mean, it just, again, as when you're doing a book like this, you start to, and then of course also, then I'll hear Pet Shop Boys, West End Girls on the radio and be like, wait, I have to have Pet Shop Boys in there. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, so it just kind of goes on and on and on. I could go back. I could say, I'd want to talk in depth with Anthony Kiedis about Under the Bridge and like get an idea of like sober Anthony Kiedis remembering completely fucked up Anthony Kiedis and trying to bring those memories into this beautiful song that sounded absolutely nothing like anything the Chili Peppers had ever done. I don't know. That kind of stuff just is endlessly fascinating to me. And I love that you're doing these books. I hope that there's volumes three through 12, but you know what? These people are getting older. So you're on a time clock here. I mean, I went to Ronnie Spector for Be My Baby. And unfortunately, I actually had some movement with Olivia Newton-John, who I would have just loved to have in there uh, as a fan. And yeah, so absolutely. You're, I mean, but, you know, in this first one, it starts with The Temptations, My Girl. Yeah. And talked with Otis Williams, who was the last Living Temptation to record that song. So that was a huge one for me to have that in there because he's 80 years old at the time. And it's like, it's my girl. I love it. Steve, thank you so much. Best wishes. Happy Thanksgiving. And um I can't wait for the next one to come out. I'd love to have you back on and we'll talk about some more. All right. Thank you so much. Anytime. I'd love to be on. Thanks again for having me. Thank you to Steve for coming on the show and to you for listening. And stay tuned as our annual holiday song episode drops in a couple of weeks. Happy holidays to everyone. And as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. See ya. Get your song facts back here.